Welcome to a special season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society, or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In this special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into an INS annual meeting. And welcome to the final episode of the Social Justice Special Season of Neuroethics Today. I'm your host for today, Timothy Brown. And in this episode, we'll, we will digest the lessons from the 2021 International Neuroethics Society's annual meeting, um, the first one on social justice. And we'll wrap this series up with closing remarks. Um, today, I am joined by uh, a group of amazing scholars and colleagues and friends um, who are uh, Catherine Basil, um, neuroscience PhD candidate at Maastricht University. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Tim. Uh, I'm also joined by Juhi Faruqi, uh, neurocomputation PhD student at Carnegie Mellon. Hi, Juhi. Hi, Tim, great to be here. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Aaron Morrow, Cognitive Psychology PhD student at, New, uh, at UCLA, who's just starting this year. Congratulations and welcome. Thanks, Tim, happy to be here. And uh, I'm also joined by Dr. Jasmine Kwasa, um, postdoc at Carnegie Mellon's Neuroscience Institute. Hello, Jasmine. Hey, 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 good to be here, good to see you. Always good to see you. I feel like we see a lot of each other. <laughs> and last but not least, Dr. Kate Webb, postdoc at McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Hello, Kate. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me today. It's great, to, great for you to be here. I'm glad we can put this together and have this uh, conversation about social justice and neuroethics. Um, so the goals for this meeting are to, uh, you know, sort of just digest um, the amazing neuroethics societies, I mean, International Neuroethics Society's annual annual meeting, and think about some of the lessons that we all took away from, uh, from the meeting. Um, think about what some calls to action could be uh, for, for the neuroethics society, but for everyone out there thinking about um, neuroscience, the brain sciences in general, um, everyone listening to this podcast who I would hope would take so many lessons away from not only this podcast, but from, from just learning about the intersections uh, between uh, social justice work and neuroethics work. So let's start with a question uh, for our um, wonderful guests. What were your favorite moments uh, from the 2021 annual meeting? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I think that one thing that I loved about the annual meeting was just the um, diversity in speakers. So I think traditionally neuroethics has been really a conversation between the philosophers and the neuroscientists. But in this meeting, like just when I first saw the program, I was really excited because it seemed like um, you know, there were there were people from the community, there were people involved in more industry, talking about AI. Um, also folks involved in disability rights and activists and sociologists. And um, I just thought that it did a really good job of framing neuroethics as a conversation that we all need to be having and that was welcoming to all disciplines and even folks who aren't in academia in the traditional sense um, and doing research. So I really, really enjoyed the, the programming from that perspective. And then some of my favorite sessions were um, session on environmental neuroethics and the developing an anti-racist neuroscience, um, those, those two panels. Fabulous. Erin, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, just to kind of continue off of what Kate was mentioning, one of my favorite panels was the disability and neurotechnology panel. 
um, we got to hear directly from people in the disabled community. And I really enjoyed that they were able to share every dimension of their experiences from, you know, the strictly clinical details to the burden of structural difficulties that they face. Um, and I really believe that neurology and neuroethics must interface, take feedback from, and really like co-develop care and actionable items with disabled people. And so I thought that that panel was a great introduction to that kind of scholarship and action. Um, their stories matter, we need to see their faces, and that panel was a great way to do that. And of course, that includes people with intersectional identities, gender, race, sexuality, with unique challenges, unique needs, and unique triumphs. So it was great to see that um, displayed in the panel. Absolutely. Catherine? Yeah, I, I, I definitely second Kate and Aaron on their comments. I mean, um, seeing this, this the, the, the presence of different stakeholders makes you appreciate how these topics, the topics of social justice and neuroethics are not really problems only for neuroethicists or problems only directed to neuroethicists and uh, those that, that uh, or philosophers, but really for society as a whole and the different stakeholders that are involved in these topics on a daily basis. Um, and, and if I want to think of um, my favorite session in relation to that is really the global mental health session where you could see that we had a, a, a panelist from different cultures that also uh, spoke about their different needs and how for example neurotechnologies for developing countries are not the answer for underdeveloped countries so the, the, these were really issues that opened up my eyes but i'm sure the eyes of many of how um, you know, there is only, uh, um, uh, we only see the tip of the iceberg when it comes to many of those neuroethic, ethical related issues. And I think the, the, the meeting was, did a great job at really showing what lies underneath all of that. Excellent. I, I also felt very similarly in that uh, global mental health panel, uh, global neuroethics panel. Um, I found that the way that the way that we problematized the the use of neurotechnology and the idea that we will deploy these neurotechnologies to make certain kinds of headway in you know mental health uh i just i just thought it was a very important session um it was very important for me just thinking about the intersection between technology and society generally um, just to think that, you know, there aren't always technical fixes to social issues. And so I thought that was really important. Um, Jasmine? Yeah, um, so uh, last year's meeting was my first meeting for the INS, which was really special for me. Um, and I guess I've only been, my background is in engineering and only in later grad school was I attending more neuroscience conferences. So this is like you know, one or two fields away from my original training. And I found it such a special environment, um, not only for the amazing panels and, and kind of talks that you all are referring to, um, but just the, the interactions one-on-one. -on -one. Um, there was this interesting like gather town um, session, kind of like an online way to network with people with little cartoons and things. And um, that's where the poster session happened. So. Um, just shouting out Kate, who invited me to co-author a paper with her, and through that process, we decided to uh, put together a poster for last year's meeting, and that's how um, I ended up getting involved in INS. And with our poster, you know, you have a little PDF online, and there are people coming around and asking questions, and I got to meet some amazing people doing really interesting, life-changing, world-changing work. And I thought that was a standout. A lot of times you go to these conferences and maybe there's a senior academic grilling you and maybe there's a junior academic trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, understand the basics. And it's, it's very, um, uh, it's not quite collaborative. It's more, um, you know, teaching and learning. Whereas I found the INS poster session extremely collaborative. And in fact, I, you know, forged partnerships and, and kind of um, colleagues with, a couple of people who approached my poster and were even working on creating workshops and things um, for an international kind of context. So I found this meeting to be so special in the kind of one-on-one -on -one relationships that I could form. And even with some of the panelists and workshop hosts, I could I felt free and open to email them and kind of say, this was a really great talk. And yeah, I just 
maybe I'll summarize by saying it doesn't feel as hierarchical as a lot of meetings and it, it felt quite collaborative and these ideas are, are are free to flow in a way that I found you know beneficial to me even a year later so yeah I'm so glad that was your first experience of the INS and the annual meeting I I think yeah that that's exactly what the program committee was trying to do yeah. um, so I felt so. like I was being involved in something that really spoke to me and was it was I don't know, like actually beneficial in a, in a really special way. So yeah, it's great. Absolutely. Juhi? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite thing about that meeting was how creative and how generative it was. Um, I think, you know, we talked a lot throughout that meeting about um, kind of the ways that we need to rethink things and rethink the structures that we operate in. And I felt like the structure of the meeting itself kind of um, reflected that, you know, kind of in and of itself, right? And part of that was that it was a virtual meeting and there were these additional spaces on GatherTown or in the, you know, uh, chat boxes for people to have a broad array of, you know, interactions and um, have these conversations where people were bringing in different elements of their experience or different, you know, background that other people might not have had or, you know, really kind of enhancing the experience of, you know, maybe just listening to a panel or, um, or hearing a speaker. Um, and I think one of my favorite moments was actually during that sort of opening session where there was just this really lively conversation going on between, a, again, a really diverse set of people from a diverse set of backgrounds at varying, you know, levels um, of, uh, kind of, you know, where they're at in their academic career. Um, and it just felt very, um, I think the entire meeting, the way it was set up and structured, just felt very community oriented. And I love that we were able to have these workshops that we were able to have, like the arts workshop and, you know, have the workshop where we were hearing from uh, disability advocates and, you know, these things that we don't necessarily usually think of as part of um, this kind of academic meeting, but that we're so, um, we're able to add so much richness to it. Absolutely. I I completely agree. And I guess I should say what my favorite moments of the annual meeting were. Uh, I would have to say that while I, I mean, not while, but I definitely agree with all of our, um, uh, uh, everything that has been said so far about how amazing it was that we were able to uh, bring so many people from diverse backgrounds uh, diverse disciplines, but also diverse socio, uh, social backgrounds uh, to, to speak on different social justice issues within uh, neuroethics, um, mostly because we typically think of neuroethics as uh, something of a subfield of bioethics in a way where we have to do these cut and dry evaluations of cases, you have to think about moral principles in a very in a very stiff way, and it was just nice to shake up the discipline, which is a fairly young discipline. It's 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 amazing that we have to shake it up this soon into its life, but the fact that this annual meeting shook it up a little bit, um, probably more than a little bit, is amazing, and and I also agree with Juhi that. I'm I'm amazed at how generative this meeting was, um, but one of my favorite moments uh, was the depictions of disability in neurotechnology panel, and this in this panel, well, I was the organizer of it, but I felt like I was taking a huge risk in putting this panel together for this group of people, uh, for our uh, our neuroethics society. Um, we brought together. Um, Jasmine Harris, um, Catherine Stanifer, who has this great um, uh, memoir called Lightning Flowers. Uh, we brought together uh, the cyborg uh, Jillian Weisse, uh, who's this poet and artist and activist, um, whose who's, um, book I'm familiar with, The Amputee's Guide to Sex, um, really shook up my preconceptions about what neuroethics could be. Uh, Jillian Weiser um, started off our session 
by reading a poem. And all of us were, we weren't silent, but we were, we were in that beatnik mood. <laughs> it was a great moment. And it's not a moment that I ever thought we would ever uh, have at an International Neuroethics Society annual meeting. Uh, not to say anything negative about previous meetings, but this is not the, the, the kind of meeting I imagined the Neuroethics Society annual meeting to be. Uh, and I'm so glad it was possible and I'm so glad it worked. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that was my favorite moment. But um, Catherine. <laughs> I, I think we could also definitely say that the fact that it was virtual also introduced a lot of, you know, things that would normally not have happened in a in-person annual meeting. I mean, these conversations that Juhi referred to in this comment section. I mean, people were actively during sessions and during lectures, really actively commenting and discussing and sharing their 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 opinions and and and, and thoughts about what was being discussed, which is something you normally would not be able to openly share if you are in an in-person meeting, because of course you have only very limited time to share your, you know, to ask questions and get answers to that. But I think people were able to more openly discuss freely about um, their thoughts on the topics that were being brought up, which I think is a is a is a very positive thing to to have in such a in such a at such a conference. I completely agree, and I just want to call back to something that was mentioned previously, both by Juhi and Jasmine, uh, this use of gathered town, this software package that is essentially a Super Nintendo game uh, that's massively online for the sake of conference uh, meetings, sort of an elastic version of Zoom. And I really do think that it brought us together uh, for a, a poster session that was extremely generative for uh, uh, mostly because it allowed us to speak to one another in the ways that we wanted to speak to one another um, to have certain amounts of privacy. And I will also say that Juhi was a champion for this in the program committee. So thank you for <laughs> not letting it uh, fall to the wayside. And it was a smashing success, I think. Yeah, I was really excited about it, and I'm really excited that it worked out as well as it did. It's also just a very nerdy thing to <laughs> participate in. Um, but also speaking to uh, the very fact of this meeting being an online meeting, uh, it was structured in a way where uh, it was, it was uh, spread out over two days, over a long period of those two days, with lots of breaks in the middle. And this was a deliberate choice on the part of the program committee to encourage international participation, because we know that people are participating, it's supposed to be an international meeting. And so we know that people are participating from all over the world and um, have time constraints, have uh, lives, have, have careers. And so I think it was extremely important to have that on-ramp for everybody. And I think everybody on the program committee um, agreed as well um even if it if even if it did mean that a lot of us uh stayed up until <laughs> wee hours of the night making sure that programming was ready for the next day um, i think it was worth it in the end okay with that said let's let's ask another question uh so for all of you what were the most important take-home messages from the annual meeting We've said a little bit so far, but let's get into some details. Uh, Juhi? Yeah, so I think one of the things that has stuck with me the most um, was a phrase that I think came out of the, the um, religion and social justice panel, um, but that I think was a theme that I was kind of seeing everywhere, which was um, this idea of epistemic humility, um, right? And so I, it really spoke to me. I think it really embodied a sense of, you know, uh, us as researchers, as scientists, as academics, uh, being, forcing ourselves to be willing to put aside our assumptions and put aside, 
you know, what we might think we know about what uh, to really engage with other forms of knowing, with other uh, other people and their knowledges, uh, drawing on communities uh, in ways that, you know, might still be a little foreign to and uncomfortable for the academy and the institutions, right? Um, and I thought that was really, it felt like a really central point. It felt like a really central critical way of engaging um, in order to be able to bring social justice into action um, in our day-to-day work and our research in our institutions. Um, so that felt like a really sort of critical step. Uh, and to me, you know, that I think was the kind of central takeaway uh, for me. Yeah, I love this um, concept of epistemic humility. I, I'm always calling for people to be epistemically humble, especially given the possibility for uh, what some philosophers call epistemic violence. Kate, you want to mm-hmm. jump in? Yeah, I would just, I would completely agree with that about like that. The humility and the positionality of the researchers was really called attention to because the the speakers were so diverse. And I think that that was very unique. And then additionally, there was a lot of focus about the why. And that was something that I feel like sometimes gets lost in in conversations about neuroethics is why are we doing this? Is this a thought experiment? Is it to, you know, to have a conversation with with our own field and differentiate neuroethics from um, you know, bioethics, kind of what you were talking about earlier, but this was really like, let's recenter on the people and, and the real impact of, of the conversations and the issues that we're discussing. And I thought that that came out um, really well. And there was the, the panel on neurotechnology and neural law. Um, and I can't remember the full session name, but that certainly was talking about how, you know, there's real life consequences to a lot of the surveillance and policing and and use of um, the role of neurotechnologies. Um, And then particularly in the um, developing the anti-racist neuroscience talking about, you know, why are we studying racism? And it's not just to get papers published, right? That was kind of like recircling back around and saying, okay, it's not just because this is, you know, a hot topic right now. We need to be doing this really intentionally. And the, the purpose is you know, of, of furthering and getting to a point of health equity. Um, and I think that that was really like a good recentering conversation. And also um, in those, another kind of through line in addition to the why was more of that intersectionality to the why. And I thought that that was really um, exciting because neuroethics in the past, I think has, has focused on one issue at a time. Um, so thinking about, you know, how does socioeconomic uh, status impact the brain and let's figure that out, but not thinking about, you know, how does that intersect um, with structural racism? And so there was a lot of calls attention to, to those issues. Um, and I thought it was a pretty transformative, you know, theme throughout and takeaway and also kind of left me feeling really invigorated and, um, really very much like these are issues that I can take back to my own my own work. Absolutely, absolutely. Erin, you want to jump in? Yeah, I just want to concur with Juhi and Kate and, and really center that idea of epistemic humility. Um, I think I really took this away, especially from the environmental neuroethics episode um, and learning just how we can be more accepting of different ways of sharing knowledge and expertise while understanding, you know, cultural history and context. Um, and I also think a big takeaway of the meeting for me was really exploring what inclusivity truly means within a neuroethical context and how we affect this change at every level meaningfully. So beyond, you know, this like kind of personal soul searching that's been a, um, a big topic in the past two years. Um, how do we affect this in leadership, funding, visibility, academic culture, education? Some of these topics were touched on, I believe, in the anti-racist neuroscience panel. Um, and being mindful about our requests for participation from different groups. Like, what does that look like? So I believe that that was a, a big takeaway for me, thinking about what inclusivity in this context truly means. Awesome. Catherine? I think for me, it really changed the way I see what falls under 
neuroethics. I think I would have never thought that social justice is a topic or a theme that would fall under the neuroethics umbrella. I mean, I come from a neuroscience and biology background. And I think when I started getting introduced to the, to, to the topic or to the field of neuroethics, I would typically follow what was on, you know, hyped when it comes to neuroethics topics, when we're talking about brain, brain organoids or neuro rights and neurotechnologies. But here, social justice was really the main theme of the INS annual meeting. And what, what, what I once thought was mainly and probably strictly a social issue, it was in this case, the main theme of the whole conference. And I think with, with seeing the different talks and the sessions, I became, I, I started appreciating more how and why social justice is not really just a general topic that the social studies should really, should really focus on, but why it is important to uh, the field of neuroethics and the scholars working in the field of neuroethics. And this also led me to question, what are other similar topics that um, we are currently not aware of or are not on the neuroethics agenda, but are as urgent or even more urgent similarly to social justice and that probably we should be shedding light upon and we should be discussing um, in, in, in the field of neuroethics. So I think it was a bit of a change of perspective for me, but also learning how neuroethics is not really just the, the, the neurosciences and just the neurotechnologies that are emanating, but it's really, it, 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 it kind of creeps into other fields and um, in, into into more in, into bigger issues that we normally would not uh, pay attention to. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that I took away um, from the annual meeting was uh, confirmation that neuroethics isn't just a, a, a collected set of transhumanist musings. And I know this sounds odd because I mean a, a lot of the work isn't necessarily uh, transhumanist explicitly but definitely one of the under underlying assumptions in a lot of neuroethics is that people are working on technologies um, and these technologies are morally salient and we need to analyze that moral salience and it was great to be surrounded by scholars who were saying, no, technologies are not the most important thing in neuroethics. If we're thinking about um, indigenous people and how uh, encroachments on their land and their sovereignty affect their mental health, is technology or are neurotechnologies really that deeply involved in that? When we're thinking about global health in the global South, is it necessarily the case that a brain-computer interface is going to be the thing that solves their issues? Um, and, and thinking about that from Ameri an American context also, you know, my friends and family, they think of neurotechnologies as a faraway thing. And this is what I've dedicated much of my research time to, thinking about uh, the moral salience of neurotechnologies and just to think that I can expand out from there something I've known for a long time, but this annual meeting gives me the courage to do so, to actually expand. So uh, this annual meeting was full of calls to action. Who do you think should answer the calls to action? Um, who's best, best positioned to make progress on the front of social justice and neuroethics? Juhi? Yeah, I guess um... I'd maybe start with, you know, this call for epistemic humility should be answered by all of us, right? Um, everyone who is doing research, everyone who's in this space, uh, thinking about science, thinking about neuroethics, thinking about neurotechnologies, thinking about all of these, these questions. Um, this is really a call to rethink, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? And is what I'm doing the thing that actually, you know, um, addresses the problem that I want to solve. Um, and, you know, this is something that, you know, having those conversations during that annual meeting prompted me to think about, you know, new projects that I can do to actually start trying to address that question of, well, are the things that I'm doing actually, you know, the things that I 
should be doing or the things that I think I'm doing, right? Um, are they answering the questions that I think they're answering? Or are they solving the problems that I think they're solving? Um, and so I think that, you know, there are many other calls um, that maybe are more specific to uh, certain areas of study or certain individuals or certain institutions. Um, but I think that particular one to me is a call to everyone. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I, I think what epistemic humility means will change for different people as they're positioned differently within, um, within academia, within industry, within community organizations. Um, just even thinking about the interactions between PIs and their students and postdocs, um, what it means for a PI to be epistemically humble um, will be completely different, or maybe not so different, but in a lot of ways different from what it means for a student or a postdoc to be epistemically humble. And sometimes that'll just mean that the PI um, needs to recognize that they don't have the perspectives necessary to do certain forms of work and that those, those perspectives are necessary for doing work. So they need to change recruitment, but that's just one example. And so I completely agree, Juhi. Yeah, and that those perspectives come from multiple places and can come from outside of the academy, right? Um, and or outside of you know academic institutions. Um, and I think, you know, one of mm -hmm. the uh, one of the the core things, at least in our lab, is, oh right, you know, we are working on technologies that are ostensibly to help people with certain disabilities. And are we actually talking to those people before we start formulating our projects and understanding? how to formulate that research to actually best address what the people that we say we're trying to serve actually want or need. Absolutely, so important. Jasmine? Yeah, everything you said is was incredible. Um, yeah, so actually a lot of the, the takeaways of the, the full meeting, which was your last question, it, it came from the calls to action that I think um, we're discussing here. There were so many, and I, in my head, I identified so many things that we need to do as a field and so many um, kind of people in different positions and in different fields, even outside of academia that need to work together um, to make this enterprise more inclusive and more um, actually helping the people who we claim to seek to, to help. And so, um, you know, there are, there's a lot of talk all the time about how, you know, research. So for example, I'll just be very concrete. Um, like Kate and I talk a lot about inclusivity and who is a part of our um, like neuropsychological human studies, right? And so um, thinking about EEGs and FNIRs and kind of these non-invasive neurotechnologies and how people with certain phenotypes like coarse curly hair or um, darker skin might not be included in those samples just based on their phenotype, what they look like. And so, you know, Kate and I have talked a lot about this and talked a lot about what are the calls to action for different people. So for researchers, even if you can't design, you're not an engineer like me, so you can't design a new EEG system or a new system that will be less biased, but you can at least report the demographics of the people in your studies, right? So that's a call to action. And then you go up to the level of, you know, the IRB at an institution and they should be able to say, have certain demographics that reflect your, you know, your area, your local kind of recruitment base. And then you go up to the level of foundations and they should kind of require these things. So we're talking about all of these kind of um, people who, who would be, who would be necessary to have to, to kind of get to our future. Um, but I think as neuroethicists, and I, I got into a couple conversations like this at the meeting, um, it's on us to call attention to these other, you know, groups that can work and help, but it's on us to kind of make, this might be a little spicy, but to make almost an economic argument, um, for this. So we're, we're always stuck in the land of, we should do this because it's the right thing to do. And we want to help people. Um, but that doesn't change the economic realities of doing non-inclusive science or doing non-just science, right? Um, if you want to benefit the majority, then you'll just pick the easiest solution. That's the cheapest. And then you go for it. And I think um, almost every conversation I have in kind of the INS 
<laughs> multiverse <laughs> comes down to the money of it and, and who's incentivized to do certain things. So I thought it was really special to be able to talk beyond just the science, beyond just some like philosophical framework and really think about how do we get um, the systems around us in a position and, and how do we as neuroethicists make those calls from almost like a capitalist and economic standpoint <laughs> um, to, to make these changes happen. So and I keep thinking about, um, you know, the global burden of epilepsy is such that people from lower income nations have the most amount of epilepsy. And if EEG doesn't work for those people, then, you know, that's kind of a catch-22. All right. So what is the economic argument that you make to the World Health Organization to say, invest in these types of things? Well, the answer is there's a global burden that, you know, these lower income nations and um, people who look like me have. And so let's, you know, put money towards it because it's actually going to help us later on in terms of how much money we're spending on um, um, kind of treatments for certain disorders. So I don't know if that made full sense, but just thinking way more beyond the the kind of ideals and thinking about the reality of what's going on, I think was really um, salient to me in the in the informal conversations that I had. Absolutely, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and this lines up with my intuitions about um, how we actually achieve the goals we set out to achieve. We have to make it connected to the to, to our funding mechanisms. We have to make sure that the kinds of efforts that we want to see in the world um, are not the sorts of things that will kill a grant because it takes money to you know recruit more widely. It takes money to think about um, how to change study designs to be more inclusive and less um, uh, more more social justice oriented, and and if funders are not willing to pay for those kinds of projects, then we're dead in the water. And so we need to think about how we move from. Uh, and this is just another way to rephrase uh, what you've said, but we need to move from um, theoretical frameworks to policy frameworks. We need to Absolutely. think about how to restructure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we need to think about how to restructure the practices within our um, within our professional spaces, our extra professional spaces, our collaborative spaces, and think about how to restructure the practices within funding organizations. I know that the National Institutes of Health has the Brain Initiative, and the Brain Initiative has this uh, plan to enhance diverse perspectives, the PEDP. Um, that they're requiring new projects um, include in their uh, grant applications. But is that enough? But we can ask that question, but it is a step in the right direction. So really cool development there. How can we get every funding organization to do something like this? And how can we push it further? Um, right. And I'll just briefly just tack on, like, it's, kind of up to us as people who are thinking about not just the technologies and the math and science of everything, but also the ethics of it to bring it to the attention of the funders, the, the foundations, the governments, the non-government bodies, um, because we're uniquely positioned at that nexus that I don't think a lot of people have. So that was a big call to action that I had in my heart as I left. So yeah, thanks for the great summary, Tim. Yeah, money talks. We have to make sure that people know that. Um, Kate, you want to jump in? Yeah, just two things to kind of follow up with what Jasmine was saying. I think certainly the, the bringing more people into the conversation about the ethical implications of their work was like a big call to action, was, was really like, I think of it from the whole pipeline from basic neuroscientists who are doing work and thinking that maybe they don't have to engage with, with neuroethics when they know that their work has ethical implications, but they just don't think that the community is necessarily um welcoming towards to them and they're like because they're using animal models or something but actually a lot of those animal models the takeaways and the discussion directly tie into a lot of social justice so i'm thinking even about conversations about sex differences right in animal models and um neurobiology like that directly ties into social justice um and i think 
bringing more people into the conversation is going to be incredibly beneficial. The second point, and I think to Jasmine's, Jasmine was talking about with, um, you know, who's developing technology and, and the calls for, you know, the researchers, the IRB and the foundations, as a a white woman, and I'm just going to say this very bluntly, I felt like the calls to action to me were very much like um, to consider my positionality and privilege a lot more um, and how it directly ties into my work and thinking about how, um, you know, my, my research questions and the tools that we use, and we talk about this a little bit in our paper, we like to think are incredibly objective um, but that's coming from the from our own lens. Like we're assessing objectivity through our lens of what we think is objective, what we think is right, what we think is true. And I think that there is a really good focus on, you know, telling um, scientists from marginalized communities to that their voices were really important and necessary for the advancement of, of science and neuroethics. Um, and also encouraging, I think a takeaway for, for white scientists was to listen and reflect and think about why they're doing the work that they're doing and how can they incorporate, you know, because they don't have the lived experiences, how can they still be having conversations and incorporating those lived experiences into their work um, or other, you know, the of, of who they're studying. I explained that poorly, <laughs> that last sentence, but I think um, those were two kind of major takeaways for me. No, I, these I, are great takeaways. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jasmine. I'm so sorry. I Kate just kind of brought it to my attention. So in calling out her positionality as a white woman, this was never said explicitly during the meeting, but I think a lot of us marginalized scholars did have this thought of, I mean, I'm a black woman, right? Um, I, from Southside Chicago, it actually implicitly was encouraging of marginalized scholars to be who they are and to bring their, their issues to the forefront. So while perhaps majority and like hegemonic scholars are, um, encouraged to to explicitly encouraged to think critically about who they're serving and in their positionality, it actually empowered me and um, one of my Filipino brothers who was there and a few other people who I spoke to, to like for me, it encouraged me to be black, walk in the room to be black and and talk about my experiences because I tell the story all the time. When I started my EEG journal journey, um, my mom came to the lab. She said, "Can you set me up?" And I said, "No." <laughs> because your hair is gonna get in the way. And it kind of broke her heart that I couldn't do the very science that I was working on for years in grad school on my own mother because she has coarse curly hair. So there was an implicit kind of thing, just the theme of the conference altogether. It actually was life-changing in that way, being able to say, I'm black and I'm gonna be black and I'm gonna be loud about it. People being able to say, I practice a certain religion or I have a certain disability and people are finally making a space for me to talk about it. That was really powerful. So thank you, Kate, for bringing that up because it was something implicit that I, I, I didn't realize was happening, but it definitely, I've been a lot more outspoken since that meeting. Um, so yeah, I'll end there. You are all gonna make me cry <laughs> because I have a lot of those same feelings. And, you know, I come from philosophy as a discipline. Uh, I was trained as a philosopher and, uh, most people who have ever interacted with philosophy know that it's a very white and male discipline. It's one of the most white male disciplines um, that I could have joined into. And one of the consequences of that is that all of the people of color, all of the women of color, everybody who's not white male, um, uh, I guess maybe atheists or Judeo-Christian, um, we end up huddling in a corner talking about our experiences among ourselves. And, and it never feels like we have a, a, a place to feel like we are acknowledged outside of the bubbles that we create for our own mental health. And so to have a space where an entire society came together and said, hey, let's do this. Let's make this space um, inclusive, dare I say inclusive. Um, but also a celebratory of all of the different kinds of people in the society. And let's try to expand from there. Let's say, bring in all of these different communities. It's, it's, in heart, it's, it's enriching, it's empowering. Um, and so 
uh, I feel honored to have been part of it. And I hope that we can keep this going, you know? I hope that future meetings will have this kind of component in it, uh, at least a component, but hopefully more of a component. And I think that's a good segue into my last question for the session. Um, so social justice is usually an afterthought in conversations about neuroethics. And those of us who do neuroethics, while embedded in laboratories or as part of our laboratory work, um, know that sometimes neuroethics, or more often than not, neuroethics is an afterthought, going back to uh, Kate's comments earlier. Um, so the, what does that mean? Neuro, neuroethics is an afterthought, social justice is, is an afterthought. That means social justice is an afterthought of an afterthought. Not good. Um, so what can we do to make sure that social justice becomes a forethought rather than an afterthought? Catherine, you can have the first comment. I think I will keep it short, just keep talking about it. And that's what I try to do within my neuroscience community. I keep talking about neuroethics because I think it is relevant. I think it's important to that community. And we need to do the same with social justice. And I am very happy when I hear that, you know, Jasmine, you feel empowered after the annual meeting to speak up and to be more of who you are. And I think we should keep on doing that. And, you know, this, this was something that was also discussed in the, in the first episode of this, this, this series where, you know, there was this fear that, okay, was so, the social justice theme just the theme of the annual conference? Or is it something that's going to stay and stick with the people that attended, with the people that, you know, took part in it, because of course it could it could have been a, an amazing conference, but would it would it still have an impact if people did not take it and apply it and take action and do something about it after leaving the conference? So I'll just keep it to that. Let's keep talking about it. Absolutely, yeah. You can't make me shut up about it at this point, um, Juhi. Yeah, so uh, building on a point that Jasmine made earlier and a, a point that I think came up during the meeting as well um, is, you know, we and I'm using the broadest possible we here right, as a field, as a society, as a whatever, um, really need to put our money where our mouth is on this. Right. Um, and, you know, build in incentive structures that uh, that incentivize doing social justice work and make it uh, yeah, make it, you know, something that advances your career rather than something that you kind of have to find time to do uh, alongside of everything else that you're strictly supposed to be doing and all of that, right? Um, so I think, you know, that practical element is super important. Um, I also think that, you know, this idea, like what Jasmine was just talking about, this idea of being empowered to, uh, to be one's full self, um, that is something that, you know, having incentive structures helps with, but that is much more of a, um, a social shift, right? And so there's, there's something I think that is in the process of shifting um, in how people think about and talk about and interact with science and ethics and neuroethics, um, but that, you know, there's still, there's still a ways to go to create the the kind of space more broadly that we all experienced um, at that meeting. And I recall, you know, you and I, Tim, having these conversations as we were kind of working on putting things together in the on the program committee for this meeting about, well, how, you know, how can we make this really meaningful? And how do we know that people aren't just going to say social justice words and then go off and do whatever? <laughs> um, and I think that you know, the, all the reflections that I'm hearing today um, are saying to me that, that that seems to have been happening, right? At least somewhere in there, um, there was something that was being internalized and that, that I've heard from, you know, attendees of the meeting in general. Um, and so I think, you know, it feels like we're, we're taking, we're starting to take those steps and we're starting to get a framework for, here's kind of what it looks like for all of us to start engaging with social justice and neuroethics together uh, and create a space where that is what matters. Absolutely. It almost feels like we're terraforming 
a planet or something to be more inhabitable to folks like us. Um, but yeah, definitely money talks and terraforming projects are expensive. <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving this conversation so far. I just want to echo Juhi um, and Catherine and just say that to make sure that social justice doesn't become an afterthought in our ethics, it requires doers. Um, it requires people willing to participate in uncomfortable conversations. It requires people with privilege, I'm glad that Kate mentioned this, who are usually elevated within an academic context to sometimes take a step back and let different sources of knowledge really enrich the field because these different sources of knowledge really make neuroethics better, more impactful, more equitable, more sustainable, more interesting, and just enriches every aspect of neuroethics. Um, and those doers change the culture and it starts from there. Um, just briefly, something I also wanted to bring up, I think I can speak to on the part of INS as an organization. Um, I was briefly a communications intern at INS and Robert Beats, the INS communication director, and, and I um, worked on this kind of transparency project. Um, so I think that to avoid social justice becoming an afterthought within the organization, um, this report can hopefully um, that we created can hopefully spur that. Um, we wanted to create this transparent database of demographic and other related information on INS members, lead authors of abstracts, meeting speakers, and the INS board members um, to kind of track the progress that INS has made, but also indicate its weaknesses and what it has yet to be done um, to guide and inform future leadership and efforts to make improvements and identify where we lack data. Um, so, you know, this report showed, for example, the majority of all of these groups are from North America. Um, they're individuals from North America and Europe make up greater than 80% of all of these groups. So we, it clearly indicates that we, we have to do more to live up to the international title and international neuroethics society. Um, and the vast majority of all these groups also identified with countries designated as high income by the World Bank. So we also have socioeconomic factors to think about. Um, there are some strengths. The majority of lead authors in 2022 identified as a woman. Um, we also have non-binary representation this year in our authorship. And um, early career group, um, early career groups consisting of, you know, students and trainees are almost half of the society. Um, so there are really, um, there are strengths to talk about within the organization, but there are so many openings for growth and openings for progress. And um, I believe that we're, you know, we're just at the start of continuing to make this a part of the conversation. Thank you so much for sharing the results of that important report. Thank you so much. Um, Jasmine, do you want to jump in? Yeah, sure. Um, so I know this is perhaps like a big ask, but I think a huge thing is to just expand who INS serves and in particular, get INS as like kind of subsets of other neuro-focused societies. So, um, you know, we're self-selecting. We we show up when we think, okay, I care about ethics, so I'm going to join the INS. But there's so many people at Society for Neuroscience or in, you know, particular types of um, like sub-meetings within the neuroscience space where they're not having these conversations at all. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of worry about becoming an echo chamber of ourselves. It's great that within us, we're doing a lot of work and the, the conversation of course has to keep going starting here. Here's our ground zero. Um, but it would be really interesting to see if we could create, you know, subsets of INS that serve each of these different, you know, neuroscience societies so that people who've never heard of the INS can at least engage or hear a few things, have, you know, a couple sessions in a, in a different conference about these themes. Um, that expansion would be incredible because then you could do calls within a field specific manner to say, for example, for my field, if I'm reviewing a paper about um, or, or with, you know, EEG or, you know, FNIR's design. So like optical technologies that are at the forefront of, um, you know, brain, you know, non-invasive portable brain imaging. In a lot of my reviews so far, I've been going and, you know, one of my kind of comments in the major comments section is always, can you report demographics? Um, you know, what type of system did you use? You know, just reporting things. And me as a gatekeeper now, as a, someone who's reviewing, I can spread that, um, you know, through my own work 
what if everyone in the subfield that I'm in um, were doing that type of thing during their reviews? Well, we can't just rely on the INS alone to do that. It would require everyone in my field to get on board. So I think there's just so many amazing opportunities for us to, to spread the word and kind of evangelize out there for the social justice aspect of um, neuroethics. And, and, and the non-social justice aspects too. I think neuroethics aren't something that we talk about broadly um, in our individual neuroscience societies. So that's, um, yeah, I guess I think a big thing that we should maybe think about, you know, being the squeaky wheel, being that person who's always saying, well, do we think about who's included or well, do we think about who this is serving? Just always being that person who pushes but as a society, we're doing that on our field. I think that would be really powerful. I absolutely agree. Um, philosophers are very big fans of Socrates, who is the classic gadfly. Um, I am on board with this project of being the squeaky wheel. Um, Kate, you wanna give us some thoughts for? Uh... Yeah, just kind of last, last thoughts of, uh... Thinking about the squeak, I like the squeaky wheel um, because it it kind of we kind of need to do that in all fields. I think one of the, my biggest fears coming out of the pandemic and following you know the height of the Black Lives Matter movement was that these efforts across many facets of society were really well fueled for a while there, and now we're reaching you know couple years down the line where we're asking to see real results, and if there aren't results, then you know, some decisions are being made to cut programs or to reevaluate programs. And I think that this is a, this is a long fight, right? And so it, there's an element of remembering that and continuing to not just have social justice be a theme of one meeting. So like thinking about the annual upcoming annual meeting, are there areas where we can incorporate questions about social justice for every single panel so that it's really front and center where it's not just and we can think about brain health or neurotechnologies, but within all of those conversations, having at least a discussion about social justice and how it relates to that. I think it's important to keep fueling the discussions um, and reevaluating yearly. And I think that there, there might be an attempt to, uh, you know, well, okay, we kind of just talked about this, what else has changed, but actually a lot has changed in a year. I mean, I could think of a whole, you could have every single year a neuroethics conference with the theme of social justice, right? Because there's so much happening um, and developing. And so I think that as a society, we can we can really think about incorporating it more into meetings and have it, having it be a staple rather than um, something that we just think is kind of a, a topic that is worth one, one meeting dedicated to. And I completely agree. A deeper saturation of social justice issues into neuroethics as a whole, um, continuing to reevaluate our, our 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 priorities and our progress on social justice issues, um, continuing to think over and over again about how we can do this better. Who else can we reach? What else can we say? Um, and definitely the importance of remembering to this conversation, because a lot of people think that social justice is a thing we just all up and decided to think about during that supposed reckoning in 2020. But those of us who remember the Rodney King riots, those of us with families who remember Emmett Till, those of us who can't trace our histories back to uh, some country in Africa, um, and those of us who are living in the global South in general, who are um, dealing with all kinds of socioeconomic issues that are not even being considered yet in the neuroethics space. Um, all of us have been dealing with this our whole lives, our family's whole uh, past, and it's very difficult uh, to, to uh, tell people who've been dealing with these issues for so long that these are, these are new issues. And so just remembering collectively that this is not a new issue or these are not new issues, that they are not going to go away somehow uh, and that we need to keep moving the ball forward on considering them. This is so important. So thank you so much for your comments. Thank you, thank you so much for your comments in general, all of my wonderful 
um, colleagues who uh, joined us for this podcast. Um, and I think we'll end it there. Um, so um, thank you so much for, for being here today. And thanks so much to our listeners for uh, joining us for this entire series on social justice at the International Neuroethics Society's annual meeting. Um, uh, this has been uh, an honor to be part of both the annual meeting and to be the host of this podcast and to lead a session of uh, another podcast. This has been great. Um, Thank also, you so much, Tim. You're incredible. Thanks for bringing us together. Thanks for hosting, Tim. No problem. and conversations have piqued your interest, check out the International Neuroethics Society website, where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions. Speakers from today's episode can be found in the sessions titled Depictions of Disability in Neurotechnology and Global Mental Health Care, Identifying Disparities and Setting Priorities. Did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic? We want to hear from you. We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening. <laughs>